You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of silence. Welcome to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kahn. And in this episode, I'll be interviewing Rory Groves. He is the author of the book, Durable Trades, which of course I reviewed in a previous episode. If you haven't heard that, be sure to check that out. And nevertheless, stay tuned. This is going to be a really great conversation between Rory and I as we talk about money, we talk about fiat currency, we talk about why durable trades in this world today matters and how it can impact you in 2021. So stay tuned, sit back and enjoy this conversation. Well, welcome to the Hard Men Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kahn, and I'm joined by a very special guest. We have Mr. Rory Groves. He is the author of Durable Trades. Rory, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you, Eric. Well, as our listeners probably know by now, we did, uh, I did a review on Rory's book, super helpful. Uh, Rory, I want to dig in right away and just, I want to get a feel for where this book came from. So maybe you could start with some of your own personal story. What brought it about and, and what got you thinking about this subject matter? So I have my computer programmer, computer technology consultant background. That's what I've been doing for the last 20 years. It's what I was always interested in doing. Even as a kid, I was always into computers and high tech kind of stuff. And um, one of the things that I learned quite early on in my career, I graduated right into the dot-com boom and bust. And so one of the things I learned early on was just how fragile uh, the corporate ladder can be. Um, I remember I was in a, um, in a room, and I talk about this in the, in the uh, book, but I was, I was in a dot-com company, and I had just recently been brought in. Um, and the day after I was brought in, some uh, corporate buyout fell through, and the entire company was uh, not shut down, but almost everybody there, including the person who hired me, was laid off that day. Wow. And I remember walking into that scene. It was kind of almost like a war zone. Everyone was standing up, looking at each other, talking across their cubicles. And I I showed up for my first day of work. And and I said, well, um, so what am I supposed to do? And they're like, well, to be honest, I don't know if I'm going to have a job by the end of the day today. So why don't you go (laughs) sit in this cubicle and we'll come get you in a little bit. And yeah, in about 45 minutes, someone came by and got me and they said, yeah, I think uh, we're going to have to cancel your contract. So oh wow, that was an early on experience that I had. And um, it kind of set the stage for this unsettledness that I had about the modern economy and how fragile things are. Mm. And fast forward to um, now I've been married for 15 years. I have five kids. Um when I got to, you know, 20 years on this track, I have a software development firm and I do technology consulting, but I just got so tired of things going obsolete all the time. Yeah. Because even when you had, I had some independence when I was able to form my own firm and work from home, there was, there was a lot of uh, latitude and a lot of independence that way. But a couple of things that were bothering me is one is the things I'd make would go obsolete so quickly. I mean, in this kind of an industry, just constant turnover. I mean, there's, uh, there's always new coding platforms and computing and devices and, and tablets and phones and everything is just constantly going obsolete. Um, and that's just part of the nature of it. And most of the people who work in the industry, they understand that and they're, that's part of the risk. But after, you know, you build something, you put your life towards building something and you look back over the, you know, decades you say, what did I build that will last that like my kids can enjoy or that I can pass on to my kids? And there wasn't really anything there. And even the knowledge that I had accumulated, um, you know, there, there's elements there that I can pass on about consulting, but I can't really teach them anything that's going to be useful for them when they're right. ready to work because it's going to be obsolete by the time they enter the workforce. I, I was just kind of reevaluating that. And at the same time, I was like, you know, there are family businesses out there that have been around for decades and centuries where you have fathers passing these on to their kids and there's their kids are passing on to their kids and there's third and fourth generation. I mean, you hear about these from time to time. And I was really curious if that was like a possibility. 
I mean, everything was on the table at this point. I didn't have to do anything in technology. I just wanted to rethink where I was going. I just was very unsatisfied with the the whole corporate approach. And so um, that kind of led to me starting to research historical family-centered trades. And the other main aspect of this, as being a father, you know, your priorities shift pretty radically when you have kids. When they enter the equation, you start thinking generationally and you start thinking about not just how much uh, income potential or my own retirement or, you know, what, how many toys I can have. You're really thinking about being a provider, especially if you're a Christian man, you care about, you know, the uh, uh, discipling of your sons and your daughters and raising your kids in the faith. And so one of the things about my work, even though I was working at home, there was no way to involve my family in the work. And that was something that was really key to me is I want to be able, you know, you only have them for a few years, if you think about it. And everyone talks about how fast it goes. My oldest is 10 right now. It's just that I don't want to waste these years by being in a corporate job or being 60 hours a week locked up in an office, even if it's a great job, even if it's making a ton of money. That's not my priority. My, these kids right. and my wife, they're the priority. And so is there a way that I can be with them working together, something meaningful, still have an income, and then build something that will last? And that was really what set the stage for the book. I just, and I say this, I, I wasn't trying to write a book. I just was trying to answer those questions for my own family. Yeah, I think that's really huge in this question of durability. Um, I've had that question a lot, as you mentioned, like, could it be different than this? For a lot of guys, it is really hard because, um, you know, from as early as I can remember in my youth, kind of the, the process was like, go to college, get a great job, and then you'll be set for life. And then what I found out was, you know, I went to college, I made $25,000 a year, and I worked nights and weekends and as a journalist. And I was like, wow, this actually is not going to work for a young family like at all. So then I ended up going and working retail and being a, a retail store manager and all this stuff. But I, I think for a lot of guys, there's also some confusion. One of the things I typically get as pushback is, well, you're just trying to live in some romanticized era, recreating Little House on the Prairie. Um, I, I think that that's not what you're talking about. That's not what I would be talking about. And if people read the book, they're going to they're gonna recognize this. I wonder if you ever hear that kind of question and what would your response be to it? Yeah, I do. And I, I, I think I've thought that same question. I mean, for years, <laughs> right. we, we've, we moved out to a, a hobby farm about 10 years ago, nine years ago. And, um, you know, we were trying to become more self-sufficient and, and interested in some of these things. And, and I wrestled with that question is like, how could I walk away from a really good paying job and pursue something that's incredibly labor intensive and dirty and smelly a lot of the time. Right. And doesn't pay very well. Like, am I crazy? Am, am I like, am I ruining the best earning potential years of my life just because I have this wishful thinking about, uh, yeah, like a romanticized past. Right. And I, I am totally honest. I really wrestled with that. And the thing that I noticed, though, is that on the farm, and, and it doesn't have to be farming, but this just happened to be the thing that we were attracted to. On the farm, I am working with my family constantly. We are yeah. constantly together. And somehow the bills get paid. Um, I work a lot fewer hours in technology than I used to, but I do still work as a technology consultant part time. But all of the other things, I'm getting compensated in ways that are so phenomenal. I mean, it's time with my family. It's time with my kids. It's experiences that are just irreplaceable. I just can't even think. Uh, Let me just give you an example. Right now, as I speak, my wife is outside in a sugar shack boiling down maple sap into maple syrup in our evaporator. Um, We just uh, yesterday had a uh a sheep you birth triplets in the middle of the night oh cool and uh we're in the middle of lambing season so it's it's kind of chaotic but anyway uh 
they birthed tri- triplet lambs. My wife and I were out there 4.30 a.m. in the morning to try to oh, help man. these lambs. It turns out, as a matter of fact, the lambs are not nursing, so we got to bottle feed them. So my kids are like, today, we're, I'm like, kids, um, you're in farm school today. There's no school <laughs> yeah. lesson. This is it. And let me tell you, you're not going to get this lesson anywhere else but here because this is just an incredible experience and we'll we'll process it all later. But those are the kinds of things where like, I, I don't ask the question anymore about yeah. uh, is this worth it? Because it's just amazing to have these experiences and to be living this together with my family. Yeah. And it really drives at something that uh, this is one of the key things that stuck with me from reading the book was can you put a price on self-sufficiency? Mm-hmm. Um, and it really made me think about Proverbs a lot. Um, one of the passages, um, so I pastored and I remember preaching on this passage in Proverbs where it, it, it says to tend well to your flocks because even when wealth fails, you'll be able to have milk and you'll be able to have clothing mm-hmm. for your body. So the essentials will be taken care of. Almost every commentary I read was like, oh yeah, this is a metaphor for, you know, like, take care of the the people in your church, which is certainly true. But I read that now and I think, no, it's actually just talking about self-sufficiency. Like this is actually a principle of life that if you have some sort of connection to animal husbandry, Mm. then you are going to gain things that are better than money. And, And then you start looking at Proverbs and there's all sorts of passages like this, like wisdom is better than money. The pursuit Mm. of wisdom is better than money. Having a quiet house and a feast of herbs is better than a giant feast with mm. discord and disunity and a family that doesn't, doesn't get along with each other. So maybe if you could unpack a little more about this self-sufficiency concept, not being able to put a price tag on that, it sounds like that's really what you're, you're working toward in your own household. Yeah, exactly. I'm trying to think of that verse that um, uh, in, from Thessalonians where Paul writes and he says to... Um, Work with your hands just as we instructed you so that you will not be dependent on anybody. And I've used that verse before. And there's a lot of things in scripture, by the way, that we appropriate in our modern 21st century economy. And we kind of just take these, like you said, we just take these verses and say, well, in today's parlance, that means this, you know, that it means, it means this kind of economic function. It certainly doesn't mean working with animals or working with your hands anymore because, you know, that's not what God really wants us to do. And then there's another aspect you can say like, well, you know, these have proven to be reliable proverbs for 5,000 years Yeah, for many, many societies and other societies that have not survived the test of time. Why should we just assume that our society is durable the way it's constructed now? Instead of just taking the wisdom as it says, yeah, you know, focusing on things that make us more resilient to um, interruptions and upheavals, and as we've seen, as everybody's seen over the last twelve months, um, there's all kinds of things that can take you off the uh, off the track that you thought was going to be stable and reliable. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. You were you were mentioning that. Uh, I looked it up. It's First Thessalonians four eleven. And yeah, it's interesting because, you know, oftentimes people are like, yeah, but the Greek. And if you look at the Greek here, it actually just says work with your hands, like (laughs) as in working with your hands, like the English is is sufficient there. But I think it's a great point. And that's part of the equation of self-sufficiency. You talk about this later in the book, Mm -hmm. but really in our culture, we have this low view of work. Um, This has kind of been around and this is not new to our culture. Uh, but it's been around for a while. You see some people, like I've seen Mike Rowe talking about this, like going to college is not necessarily better for you than working in a trade. One of the other things though, Rory, that I think a lot of people's eyes are being opened to this question of a durable trade is because of 2020. And you mentioned this in your book, but I'm thinking of it because you know I was furloughed for three months in, in a uh, knowledge work type job that you know, Bloomberg said was so important and so much better. And then I'm watching, literally just watching as my buddy who's a plumber is like, I got more work this year than any year I've ever been wow. alive. And I, wow. I had to hire more staff. We can't keep up. Everybody's at home flushing toilets rapidly and <laughs> putting things down the toilet they shouldn't. And so we, I mean, they have tons of work. And then I, I talked to my friend uh, Quinn in Illinois. He's a butcher. He owns a butchery. And he's like, 
we yeah. couldn't keep the meat shelf stocked. Yeah. And pe- people now are like, after last year, they're like, okay, I found a local farmer. I found a rancher. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to schedule our own slaughter days. And I said, well, well, how's that business going? And he said, well, we're two and a half years out on slaughter days. Wow. Yeah. So I'm looking at this and I'm thinking the guys in the durable trades are doing quite well. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, I look at my career as many knowledge workers and exactly what you said in the book, 2.5 years, you're mm-hmm. in a job, almost everyone my age, you work there for two to three years. And then the only way that you can get promoted or move up is to move. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, so that means you have to move cities generally. Mm. You have to, you have to change churches, you have to change friends. Um, and it really erodes kind of the, the rootedness that you might otherwise experience. All that to say, Roy, I'm going to get to a question here now. I'm, bring, I'm bringing it all the way back around. For, for the guys, you've been through this process, right? And a lot of people seem to think like it's a quick turnaround. Like, I don't like my job. I can just quit and tomorrow I'll have everything figured out. But that's not really the way it works, is it? So you got to understand that um, the, the general generational link was broken. With the Industrial Revolution, what used to be passed down from fathers to sons to grandsons, you would have two, three, sometimes four generations of mentors that are teaching their young people how to pick up a trade and how to subsist in life and succeed in life. And um, when the Industrial Revolution came, it broke that link for the first time really in human history um, because it took the job and broke it down to its most essential parts and it commodified things that used to be a complete whole. So in other words, instead of apprenticeships, you wouldn't need to have a single person know the whole process of, um, uh, say, creating a shoe. You could have someone just making laces and someone else just cutting the leather and someone else just stitching the leather. And they would never need to really be apprenticed to become a master of a trade. When you're trying to recreate that generational link that's been broken, you're really starting over at the beginning. I mean, we, you know, I kind of call ourselves first generation farmers in that um, there were no first generation farmers up until now, back to, you know, Adam and Cain and Abel. They, they were farmers and everyone after them had learned from their fathers. Yeah. It was just the last couple of generations where we as a civilization forgot how to farm individually. I mean, no one in prior history missed out on that skill set. This is a, not, a, a relatively new thing because we have become so specialized in so many fields of work. And that's what you were talking about with the jobs, the turnover every two and a half to three years. Um, I think the average, if I recall correctly, the average careers is like five to seven careers in a lifetime, but within those careers, they're switching jobs every couple of years. And so, but see, that's an artifact of the industrial revolution because we don't need people that can understand complete systems anymore. We need people that can uh, uh, function very efficiently at a specific task. And a lot of those tasks, uh, which are um, formerly occupied by humans, are more efficiently operated by algorithms. And so you're seeing the knowledge workers basically work themselves out of a job and not in a good way. Right. Um, they're replacing themselves with algorithms. And at the same time, you see things like the building trades uh, over this. I think there's a significant, I mm, can't remember the actual number, but there's a significant number of white collar jobs that are projected to be eliminated over the next 10 years. And during the same time period, if you look at that study, jobs in the building trades are projected to increase by 30%. Wow. And I, a lot of that has to do, I mean, the, the, the trades that I picked out in this book that have been around for a couple of centuries, they've resisted the automation because of the nature of the work. It's so custom and it's very difficult to get a robot in there, you know, to replace that one custom fitting that you need in your pipes because the plumbing isn't working. It's the same thing with working with animals, um, farming, uh, woodworking, uh, custom exterior remodeling, custom interior remodeling. All of these uh, trades, whether they're manual, and some of them are not manual, some of them are white collar trades that I cover in the book, but there's an element of customization in them that does not lend themselves to automation. 
And that's why they've survived when other trades have not. Yeah, I think that's really huge. And it kind of gets to another issue that you, you've talked about. I think it's toward the end of the book as well. But um, one of the, the functions of work is discipleship. And not only are you passing on a trade, but I like to think of it like these jobs become, and, and particularly jobs that have handwork, some sort of manual labor, side-by-side work, this master-apprentice relationship, they really function as cultural conduit. Mm-hmm. So, and, and again, I remember reading this in Wendell Berry talking about harvesting tobacco. And he said, once all the automation came, it killed our neighborhoods and our culture and our community. And people just assume, well, all this technology is good and it's better, but they weren't really accounting for how it would destroy that sort of thing. So I wonder if you could expound just why is hard work, like you think about your kids and your wife, like working alongside them in tasks that are, can be really difficult, smelly, painful, whatever, um, but it's so important for transmitting culture. Why do you think that is? It's because you need each other. I mean, we've got our, ourselves into a position where we don't really need each other anymore. And so you see families disintegrate and you see communities dissolve. When, what Wendell Berry's talking about was an era of time not that long ago no. where you had to have the community come together to survive. I mean, it was, it was required. And, um, you know, we sought more efficient and more profitable ways to accomplish these tasks. And it certainly delivered that. Uh, we're certainly more abundant in material wealth than we've ever been, that any civilization has ever been, well, right. temporarily. But what was lost was the relationship. And I think I heard on your uh, previous podcast about uh, your experience with your son hunting yeah, and processing uh, the, uh, the hunt and, and all that time. And, and, and that's messy and, and uh, a lot of work. And it's the relationships that are created or that are nurtured in that process. So you can gain, you can bypass the relationship. Relationships are inefficient. I mean, that's the bottom line. But we're not machines. God did not create us to be machines. He created us to live in community. And so when you take apart that opportunity for relationship, then you're, what you're really doing, you're removing that the community needs each other. And if we don't need each other, then we won't have any invested interest in building those relationships. And that's where the breakdown occurs. Now, the flip side of that is that you don't need each other until you do. I mean, in other words, right. um, you, you will need each other at some point. You just won't, you won't have the relationships there, so to speak, when the time comes. But when the communities of the past would face adversities, you know, families would face adversities, they would pull together, they would overcome because they had spent decades, if not generations, uh, serving each other and building these uh, building these relationships that were the safety net of times past. Yeah, I think that's really it's such a crucial concept that that of need, actually needing people, appreciating your neighbor for, you know, again, not just somebody that you know across the street or barely know their name, but we actually do help each other. Um, I can remember several years ago we were in Kentucky. And um, it was like a, the remnant, the outskirts of a tornado had gone through or a hurricane. And um, we lost power for like a month. Wow. And one of the unique features about that was I, we lived in an apartment complex, but I saw people that I had never in my life seen mm. before because the TVs weren't on. There was no mm. power and AC. So naturally people wanted to get cool, cooled off a little bit, get in the breeze. So everybody was on their front porch. And we talked and it was actually, it was one of those things where I was like, wow, this is amazing that this, now I understand why old neighborhoods had porches because people, you'd walk across the street and you'd say, Hey, how's it going? And inevitably somebody would say, oh man, you know, my brakes are bad on my car. I don't know what to do. The mechanics closed. They don't have power. And you could be like, well, I know how to do brakes. I mean, I could help you with that. No big deal. And then the minute the power came back, I never saw those people again. Wow. Everybody went in their homes. And my wife and I have talked about it ever since because it was so poignant, that moment, and realizing, mm-hmm. yeah, community is based on need and knowing each other. Uh, neighborliness is, is based on that as well. It, it also leads to another interesting question, and you've brought this up with the Industrial Revolution. But I, 
I often find that, especially Christians, I've heard things like technology is neutral. You know, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't, it's not good or bad. It's just how you use it. Um, I want to get your take on that. What, what do you think about that concept? I would have agreed with that in principle a while ago, but what you really can't ignore is if you stand back and you just look at the last 150 years. Yeah. And you look at this, I mean, really going back to like the, the mechanization of the cotton gin and the, uh, the woolen mills, the textiles, all of that stuff that was really launching the Industrial Revolution in the 1790s and the early 1800s. If you just stand back and look at that and then you say, what is the net impact on the family today? Yeah. What's the net impact on the faith today, the church today? You can't just say that that had no impact, that 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 somehow um, all of the other myriad of cultural influences were the sole cause of uh, disintegration of the family and of right. the churches and of the Christian faith that we see in decline in the, in the West since basically that all started. You have to take into account that there was something going on there that was causing this that was leading to a different way of life that no longer relied on God. When we talked about need, i tell you one thing, when you're farming, when you're raising animals, when you're doing these things and living close to the land, as God created man to do right back in the Eden, uh, back in the Garden of Eden, and yeah, all throughout scripture, it is completely an agrarian economy. When you're living close to the land, you cannot miss God. He is constantly there and the miracles are right in front of you continuously. When you get abstracted from the land and you're moving up in the sectors of the economy into manufacturing, into service, into knowledge, you are getting abstracted from seeing God in nature and creation. And there is an impact there. I think that you have to take that into consideration. So when you have a whole of society moving away from an agrarian economy into a highly specialized technical technical, technological society. Alongside that, you see a society basically um, abdicating the relationship with God, turning their backs on a way of life that for, you know, uh, 20 generations, their forefathers practiced. In In the span of one or two generations, you have to ask, there's something that technology is doing here to undo what we have formerly uh, practiced and formerly understood. So I don't agree that technology is neutral. I think technology is not morally neutral. I think there are motivations behind technology and in the minds of the inventors of the technology. And it needs to be adopted very carefully, if at all. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a huge point. Um, I remember reading this for the first time, actually, uh, I think I was reading Ann Douglas. Uh, she's a feminist writing about the feminization of American culture. Mm. And so it's for her, it's like a positive thing. Um, but the, she identifies uh, in the early 1800s, she said the turning point for feminism was the Industrial Revolution because it mm. freed the woman from the household. Mm. And, you know, we would say obviously not freed because especially men who go to work in corporate America. Uh, corporate America is not exactly freedom, ladies. It's uh, <laughs> it's not my favorite place, I'll tell you that. So, yeah, it coincides directly with with what happened, the Industrial Revolution, with what happened to the household, but also the, at exactly the same time, the disintegration of church theology. And Anne talks about this in her book as well. It, it reminds me of something. I think it was Gene Lodgson said this, but it, in commenting, we have a misunderstanding about the Amish. We think that they're just, they hate technology and they'll never use it, which if you you go around a lot of Amish, they actually do use technology. Mm -hmm. But he said in the book, he said, what they're really careful to do is to wait. Like they're not going to jump on a fad. They're not going to use a computer right away or whatever, because they're they're waiting to see what is the net effect of this going to be. And I think the problem today is uh, we've just assumed in the Christian community, especially like, oh, well, smartphones are fine. They're neutral. Mm And I realized uh, from reading like secular psychology, mostly, uh, Gene Twangy has a book on the iPhone and the, the people at Apple and Facebook who, who started all that, they're going, wow, you know, we've really actually rewired people's brains intentionally in a way that would make them more subservient to advertisers, 
to manufacturing and to status goals. And then you think, well, is that technology really neutral then? Mm-hmm. And, and it brings me back to the, when I was pastoring in a, a town of about 2,000 people, a lot of ranchers, um, most of them didn't even have cell phones. And this is like, you know, 2016. This is not long ago. They didn't have cell phones. And I would always ask them, i say, hey, when's, can I pencil you in on my schedule, you know, on my 15-minute time blocks? I said, when's a good time? And they said, oh, just stop by. <laughs> the gate will be open. Here's the key, whatever. And I'd say, I asked one rancher, I said, well, how will I know if it's not a good time? And he looked at me and he smiled and he said, oh, you'll know. <laughs> but it really made me like back up and realize, wow, look at all the language of scripture, as you've mentioned. Mm-hmm. All the language for pastoring. The word pastor is Latin for shepherd. Yeah. I mean, even what you're doing with people is not a factory boss. Um, it's not commercial or industrial in any sense of the word. And if you've been in ad- animal husbandry, you know, like this is, you, you can't just put them on a time clock, the animals. Yeah. They're seasonal, they're cyclical, uh, growth takes time. Everything about that process uh, really does take time. Uh, Rory, I want to ask you another question because, mm-hmm. and this is shifting gears a little bit, but one of the things people might be surprised to find in the book is you talk a lot about money and currency. Hmm. Um, the, you know, there's the Fed, you talk about that, fiat currency, the changes in 1913 and 1971. Why is that an important discussion a, as a part of this bigger discussion about durability? Yeah, I, I said in the first part of the book, I kind of set out to explain why I think the book is necessary. Why am I talking about durable trades? Yeah. What's the point in the first place? And the, the point is, is that I, I see a number of what I call cracks in the foundation or brittle systems. Yeah. Um, and, and it's kind of a survey starting uh, with the um, specialization, the highly specialized modern economy that we're in. And I, I use a quote from uh, Joseph Tainter, who wrote the book, The Collapse of Complex Societies, a very good book. And his theory, which was new at the time he introduced it, was that societies um, don't collapse, generally speaking, from environmental or mechanical or uh, outside, you know, foreign invasion, things like that. Generally, they they collapse because they become overly complex and it's too costly for the society to maintain that level of complexity. And so... At some point, they revert back to a more primitive state of being. And we see that over and over and over again. So, um, you know, you can see that writing on the wall in many cases with the American civilization and the Western civilization, where we're doing the same kinds of things right now that Rome did before it collapsed and that many other societies do before they collapse. We have inflated the currency. We have gone off the gold standard. We have um, um, accumulated debt like unbelievable oh, amounts crazy. of debt. I, I this last year up, alone. Yeah, I, I was going to say I looked up the stat, and it took us two hundred and eight years to accumulate one trillion dollars worth of debt in this country, and we added I think six trillion last year. Whoa! So. It's, it's, it's kind of, yeah, it, it's kind of gone parabolic now. And it's, it's, it's amazing that things have held together as long as they have, to be honest, because we, we don't see these kinds of debt um, super cycles without uh, an empire being kind of at the very end. And, it, and in the book, I chart out the devaluation of currency and I map it to the same as the Roman denarii when they started devaluing that currency as well. And you can see some of the similar trend lines there. So the whole point in bringing up some of these money, money was one thing. Um, there, there were other aspects to it. Complexity was another. Um, some of the robotic automation and innovation was another. There are, there are multiple things that people, I think, need to take seriously today. They're not just news headlines, but there's, there's very uh, uh, serious concerns about the way our modern society is built and the economies that um the, the modern economy and the and the uh, what did you say the infrastructure that we're built upon yeah and i wrote the book 
a couple of years. I mean, it took me a couple of years to write the book and it released right in the middle of a global supply chain disruption. And it actually took a long time for the book to finally come to light because it was the whole printing publishing side was getting disrupted as well. So that's crazy. I mean, we got a we had a chance to kind of see some of this firsthand. Yeah. In a way, very good timing to catch people's attention, I think, about what was going on. I want to ask you, so the other part of this book is you've done a lot of research, right? A, a big portion of the book is given to examining these trades. I just want to ask, like, what were, where were you going to do this research in terms of like, what, were, what data were you looking at? And kind of talk about that process, what you discovered along the way. Yeah, so the, the way I approached the book was I wanted to come up with um, what has been durable because I can't, I didn't want to just make predictions based on my own opinion or even even based on empirical evidence. I didn't want to make straight out predictions. I just wanted to know what had lasted. And the biggest test to me was the Industrial Revolution. If, yeah. it, if something could survive the Industrial Revolution, it can pretty much survive everything and it will have survived. <laughs> Uh, for a couple of centuries. So that was like the first test. And um, I mean, I, I came up with a list. I basically looked at all the professions that were around before the Industrial Revolution, uh, say 1790, and that are still around today. And then I, what I did is instead of just listing them, the 61 trades in all, uh, um, I gave a score based on a certain number of criteria that I used to rank these. So in other words, um, it wasn't just the the fact that it existed or not. It was um, how much had that profession changed since 1790? Um, you know, it, it, is it uh, still serving the same kinds of customers that it did back then? Is it still uh, using the same kind of tools? Um, does the profession resemble anything like it did back in 1790? And then I look at other items like family-centeredness, uh, barriers to entry, uh, what's the income potential. So income is, makes up one-fifth of the total score. It, it's obviously an important factor, but it's by far not the most important factor. I really wanted to know, first of all, what was the most durable trades, and then what was the most family-centered. So hence the title of the book, Family-Centered Economies That Have Stood the Test of Time. Yeah, that's huge. Um... We've talked a little bit about this already, but I'm curious, for some people they might ask, well, why, mainly because we're not used to this at all, but why would a job or a trade, why would you rate it so highly on family-centeredness and just what does that aspect mean? It's really consistent with the idea of what is durable. You look over yeah. the long view of history, it is families and family economies that have been the most durable over time. People working individually were very expendable. If you have a family that is building wealth and passing on that wealth and the knowledge, which, as you said earlier, wisdom is more important than money, you're passing on that wisdom and that accumulated knowledge from generation to generation. Those are the vehicles that have stood the test of time. So family-centeredness has kind of a two-pronged value for me. First of all, I want to be able to disciple my kids. Yeah, I want to be able to build uh, an eternal vision for my children, not just what they're going to do here on earth. But secondly, um, I want to leave them an inheritance that is tangible, that is durable, that if they so choose, they can pick up and expand and build upon what my wife and I have built upon. And that is the model basically for durability. It's not a get rich quick model. Uh, be very clear. These are not the highest paying professions. You can still make, as Eric, as you mentioned, you can still make a yeah. good amount of money in the trades right now. In fact, in a lot of cases, more than I ever made as a computer programmer. But it's not about that. It's about laying down the foundation and building something that's going to last. And family-centered trades were the things that lasted throughout history. Yeah, I think that's that's a phenomenal point. Uh, the other thing that I've got some feedback on, Rory, uh, in terms of the book is people reading and saying, yes, uh, listening to the review or reading the book, whichever, and saying, yeah, that, that is something that I want to pursue. Um, but in terms of first steps for guys, uh, again, we talked about this, but the obstacle is it, it would be so much easier, ideally, if this was an unbroken chain that was passed down. But 
you do talk a lot about in the book about here are some steps for how you might get into a trade because it's going to require a master. I think that's going to be key. But kind of in general, as you look at a lot of these trades, and I don't know why, I just thought of midwife as a good one. Um, You probably can't watch a YouTube video and just figure (laughs) that one out, right? So in general, what what would you tell to people about getting into a trade? It's obviously going to be hard right now. But, but key advice for that process. Yeah, and I think you brought this up earlier. And um, that is that you're not going to quit your day job today and tomorrow be a successful farmer. <laughs> By the way, if you, you'll be lucky if you're <laughs> successful at the end of the first generation. So you, you have to take a very long-term approach to this. And I would highly encourage people to uh, use the book as a reference. Um, look through it and see if there's something in the book um, of the trades that are covered that stand out to you and that seem to fit your family. It, you don't figure out the economic model of it yet. Um, but if there's something that jumps out at you that you think, yeah, you know what? I think that would make sense for our family. And I yeah. think that we feel maybe called to do this kind of a thing. We have a passion for it. And um, don't worry about that. Don't worry about how you're going to replace the income yet. Um, so just start somewhere. Start with the experience, and that could be you know planting a garden. It could be st- uh, buying some tools and starting a little bit of a hobby woodworking that may potentially move into furniture um, building. That would be a viable profession. Um, but start somewhere where you can get the family involved, and let the Lord take you where you're supposed to go. In other words, the first step is going to be one of faith. Yeah. And then take that step, be obedient to that step, and let the Lord lead you into the next step for your family. And over time, which is the key word, you're going to learn what does and doesn't fit because there's going to be things that you don't, um, that are not going to work out. You're going to find out very quickly that this is, this doesn't fit the family at the stage where we're in right now. So once you kind of get a sense of, of what you think you want to do, then the second bit of advice that I have, which is in the book as well, is that you need to find a mentor. You need to find someone who can train you on the ins and outs of that profession because you're trying to recreate that link that's been broken. And that can be difficult. It's, it's probably one of the hardest things. Mentoring is a very time-intensive process, and it's, you don't take people on lightly if you're going to be in that position. So uh, you know, I would encourage you, if there's anyone in your community that you can learn from, if you're interested in farming, for example, could you go and spend a summer um, doing work projects on that farm? We actually have a family internship that we do here on our farm where we just have a couple dates throughout the summer and then families join us and we work together doing just legit farm projects. And it's, it's a way to build community and at the same time, uh, give a little bit of a taste of what it might be like for people um, considering moving to the country or buying a farm or something like that. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I know for us, we've kind of one of the ways just to get introduced to it, especially in rural communities, was like 4-H. Um, the boys would express like, Hey, I'm interested in sheep or, you know, one year it was pigs, uh, but it, you know, you could buy one pig and they had a mentor. That's a really nice thing about 4-H. I think they understand yes. that is like, yes, definitely. you're going to have to have an expert because yeah. you know, your pig's going to get a weird fungus and you're not going to know what to do about <laughs> it. And you, you know, uh, that person that has experience is going to be able to walk you through it. But it also is kind of a low barrier to entry way to get into it. You don't have to start by like leveraging every one of your assets to see if you like it. Yeah, Um, exactly. You you can just do a little bit. And the other fun thing about it too, I think is that, and you mentioned this, a, a lot of the concept and the principles of durability are not that like you just do one animal, one crop, one mm. thing, but that's kind of the principle. Diversity is built into the traditional farm, right? So just in what you guys do, maybe talk about some of the, the a few things that keep you diverse, um, some of the different things you're doing on your farm. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I talk about that in the book too, is to practice multiple overlapping trades. These are, yeah. these are some of the uh, success factors that I noticed while researching the book that were 
consistent across all trades is that people, if you have a farm, obviously, I mean, you can do kind of the traditional field cropping uh, farming, but you also have a great place to raise animals. And so a lot of people will, will combine the two. There again, you find in conventional farming, you find um, a lot of these farms stripping out their animals because they're going to go more efficiently into row cropping. Or, um, or if people are keeping animals, they're tempted to scale up and to um, do like confined animal feeding operations where they cram as many animals as they can under one roof. That's again, look, that's kind of, a, um, it's not kind of, it's exactly copying the industrial model. And again, what that tends to do is break that whole relational approach and priority. And so if you can manage to keep diversity while still building something that you can subsist on, that's really the ideal because, um, you know, if, if something goes through that feedlot and wipes out like swine, you know, swine flu or some of the people that, um, uh, in Europe, they've gone through a number of these different, um, diseases and they've had to call entire flocks and, it can be devastating. I mean, it can yeah. absolutely just, it can totally end that farm if people are completely reliant on one stream of income. So if you are able to build up multiple streams of income across a few different trades, and maybe you have three or four things that you do together as a family, and um, each thing brings in a quarter of your the income that you need. But... Um, then if you run into a rough patch with one of those things, like if you have, I don't know, maybe, maybe you're doing a catering service as providing food for people. Um, you know, if you run into a rough spot with that, um, the, the carpentry business or the remodeling business might be able to pick up the slack. So uh, whatever that is, there, there are, there's usually not one single answer. And that was another aspect of family-centered trades is that they do practice a lot of diversity. Because there's a lot of different personalities and giftings that are in each person in that family. In in the case of our family, um, we have a small farm. We are trying our hand at a number of different animals. We have pigs and sheep and goats and chickens. And um, we tap our maple trees for syrup. And we hay about three acres. It's a 10-acre parcel. So we hay about three acres uh, to keep our animals fed in the winter. Um, and then we have uh, an apple orchard. And the other thing we're trying to do, so, so what, what our goals primarily are on the farm are self-sufficiency. We want to grow uh, as much of our own food as we can. And some, we're not quite there yet. Um, we still grocery shop, but we certainly have made an impressive amount of headway towards that goal. And we love it. We love raising these animals. We love being able to stock our freezer full of meat from, you know, and know where these animals came from and what, what kind of lives they lived and picking eggs out from the chicken coop every morning. And it, we, we love this kind of thing. It really fits us well. But at the same time, that's not going to pay all of our bills. And so we also have opened up uh, our farm to doing like hosting workshops. And, and we had a group out here a couple uh, weeks ago doing a, a maple syruping tree tapping demonstration. And so we oh, took cool. a group of people through how that whole process works. And we've done things like uh, spinning wool and we've done camps for kids and other kinds of events. So that, that's the, the, one of the other ones. This would fall under kind of informal education is what could we do to use this place to train other people in some of these forgotten skills? And, and how could we connect those dots and just be a be a place where people can gather and grow together like that. Yeah, I think that's really a big thing is the the diversity of what you're doing, and then the, again, incorporating kids in that. I know I know mm -hmm. here locally it's interesting because it uh, there's a lot of orchard property, and uh, one of the things that happens is these you know orchards they used to be farms, but now it's just row after row after row of peach trees or mm -hmm. apricot or whatever it is. But it's interesting because like last year, we had an early hard frost and it decimated like 60% of the, the produce. Yeah. And so those people are like, that, that's it. You don't have any mm. other thing that you can, you can do. And of course, the way the USDA works, it's like you get bailouts and subsidies right. now and all this stuff. That's, that's all artificial. Right. And, and so, yeah, that's, that's a good illustration of that principle. The other thing I want to ask you, though, is mm -hmm. about kids. One of the things that I've noticed... 
whether it's chickens, whether it's milking the goats, whether it is taking my kids to go feed the steers, um, whatever it is, it's really made me appreciate my kids as in, in the old world, you, when you had sons and daughters, it was like, they are the wealth, you know, mm-hmm. it, they are productive members of the household. Uh, so much in today's society, we're, we're taught to think of children as a burden and a nuisance. Mm. But as I'm working alongside my kids, and my oldest is 13 now, and he's, you know, carrying an elk quarter down the mountain, I start to realize, wow, I really appreciate him. He is doing real mm. meaningful things that contribute to the household. So I'm sure you've seen this, but, but I just wonder if you would expound on having your kids really involved and you get to see that, how important that is. Oh, it's so critical, Eric. Kids are capable of so much more than we give them credit for. Yeah. And even the kind of work that is typically delegated to children is so menial. Um, you know, the, the, when we think of chores, we think of like clean your room, brush your teeth, comb your hair, um, pick up around the house, or maybe do some of these things. But, you know, historically and traditionally, chores were like, take the herd of dairy cows <laughs> out to the back 40 before you go to school. I mean, it was yeah. like serious stuff. Like you have like a 10 year old kid, you know, leading thousand pound beasts out into the field. <laughs> but, um, but again, this comes back to need. Um, you need them. You, you, as a family in that environment, you need each other. You really have to have, you depend on one another to make a go of it. And I think that there's a couple of things that happen when you, when kids have really meaningful work, they recognize that they're an important part of that family, that they're not being assigned something that's menial or trivial, but that they are essential. And that is huge for a kid to have that kind of, um, recognition how important they are that they're not a nuisance um that they're not just being shuffled around so that uh mom and dad can work or do you know do real work or just just that they're not in the way or a burden like you mentioned there's so much in our society today that views children as a burden but the bible describes them as blessings it's the exact opposite children are an inheritance of the lord and so there there is something so valuable about having a family centered trade or a family-centered economy where those children know that they're needed and that they're important. And at the same time, they're learning valuable skills that will be very marketable from a very young age. Again, I think legally you can't hire anyone under the age of 14 unless it's part of a family business. But 14 is kind of a long time to wait to get a kid working. You know, they're able to do useful work a lot sooner than that. But it's definitely too long to wait until they're graduated from college to start. I mean, if you don't have a work ethic by the time you're 19 or 20, it's going to be hard. Life is going to be very hard because life is not as forgiving as, um, you know, the the college frat houses or the college, (laughs) the guidance counselors will be. Life is hard. You have to work hard to succeed and and to have a productive life. And that work ethic is formed when the kids are six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. You know, they need to be doing something that's regular and purposeful. And so I don't want to be too heavy on the farming side because there's 60 other trades in the book we talk about. But a farm is a good example of where there's a a large variety of um, meaningful chores that children can be involved with. And also not just children, but also elderly people. There's a lot of other kinds of nurturing related work that older people can still be a part of in if, for example, if you live in a multi-generational home, which was the norm historically. Yeah. Yeah. That's really important. Especially now, I think we tend to, same, same as we would have kind of a low view of children, we have a, a obsolescence view of older people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whereas like, I remember even pastoring in a rural community, I remember one family, we drove by their house and I asked the, the guy who ran the ranch, I said, who, who is that on your lawnmower in the front yard? He's cutting grass. He said, oh, that's my dad. He's 96. And wow. I was like, you know, when I'm 96, I want to be cutting grass on the back yeah. 40. You know, that's perfect. Nice. And they take care of each other mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Uh, Rory, I, I want to ask you this too. We talked about kids, um, but one of the things I think is often missed is in the pre-industrial home, 
Ann Douglas is a feminist, right? We were mentioned this earlier. And she says in the pre-industrial home, the women and the mothers, because they were the, they were the Proverbs 31 women, they were household managers, they said the women were revered. And feminism, you know, basically said, okay, let's get them out of the house, then women will become important and et cetera. And even Ann Douglas says, well, the, you know, the net result was the opposite. Uh, women were typically denigrated, objectified, et cetera. So I just want you to talk about how mm-hmm. important it is um, to have, you know, a godly wife in this equation. Mm. And then really how it, it, I've just seen it change how the whole family views mom when it's like, I think about my wife and it's like, she is, you know, productive in so many ways in the house and all of us being involved in the economy together in some sense, that really is like a magnifying glass on our love for each other. Mm. So why is a woman, why is, why is that so important in this equation of household economy? Oh, it's, I mean, it's absolutely essential. You're, you're talking about a shift in perspective of, of, uh, ideologies that occurred over this time period. Yes. Which was away from a biblically driven understanding of family and uh, the land and our place in it and our callings on this earth. God created us not as individuals. We're not an individualistic people. We are family-centered people. We are community-centered people. So he created us to live in relationship. And the most intimate of that relationship is the husband and wife. That's why Jesus says when uh, the, the two shall become one flesh. Where there's the falling down is really this idea that the woman is a separate whole entity unto herself, separate from the man. Even if they're married, they're supposed to pursue individual pursuits. Um, separate from each other, that kind of thinking is actually a capitalistic, industrialistic uh, type of ideology. It's actually the, the actual breaking down of the family to produce less expensive labor in order to work in factories. If you really want to trace all that back, that's where that comes from. That's what it, it comes down Ale- to, yeah. Yeah, it was Alexander Hamilton that was praising the textile mills um, of the early 19th century because it was bringing women out of the home and putting them into the factories where they would, quote, be more useful than they otherwise would be. So this concept here is what's important is not that there's a mother in the home raising and nurturing the next generation, passing on culture and faith and ethics and being an example um, for her children. It, what's important is that uh, there's another cog in the machine so that we can produce cloth more efficiently and right. make money. I mean, that's to me is just a ridiculous concept. A family working together is God's vision for a productive economic unit, and it provides for itself. That's the other thing is that when you have a, a whole economy of just individuals, you know, what do you do with those who are weak or sick? or young, or old. We don't really have solutions for them. So what we do is we round them up and we put them into daycares or elder cares, or we find these institutional solutions for these, and they're not getting as good of care as they would if they were in the home. So it's an inferior solution, but it's just so that the able work, able-bodied working adults are in the factories or the corporations or what have you, whatever the modern incarnation of the factory is today. It's that constant, relentless pursuit of the individual to work towards an efficient, profitable outcome that really is at the source of what's dividing the families. Yeah, wow, that's so good. And we have Alexander Hamilton to thank, in large part, for both feminism and central banking. Thank you, Alexander. Yeah, he, was, he was shut down originally, but it came back. He was pushing for it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rory, last thing I want to ask you is just about resources. Um, you've done a lot of research, um, and this is kind of like a really wide swath of stuff that you've been looking at, but very, very helpful as well. So I'm curious if you have like, I don't know, uh, top five, say, of books that during your research you said, wow, these have really shaped my thinking on this subject. What kind of resources would you recommend? Well, definitely at the top of that list would be Alan Carlson. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Alan C. Carlson has written a number of books on agrarian topics, on family. He has a book called uh, The Natural Family, Where It Belongs. That's, that's borrowing a few phrases from some of his essays in the book. So you'd have to read the book to get the full explanation of those. But so Alan, Alan C. Carlson has done a lot of great work on all of the uh, agrarian movements that have been around both stuff from Wendell Berry's writing. He's, he's compiled um, uh, essays on that. And he's written about some of the, um, uh, is it Free America, the journal back in the early, uh, 30s and 40s. He just came out with a recent book about that called Land and Liberty, which is wonderful. So I, I would highly recommend anything that Alan Carlson has. Um, he was really influential in helping me understand, because see, I had always been, uh, considered myself a capitalist, and um, I've always been conservative, and there's kind of like, that's really um, the only option out there. But Alan really helped me to understand that there are some different approaches. You go back to G.K. Chesterton, and you go back to some of these other authors, you realize that it hasn't always just been one cookie cutter choice or either Republican or Democrat. There are, there's a lot more nuance, especially when you get into things like the family. And that to me was what was uh, really ringing loudly in my mind is that I wanted strong families. Yeah. And so Alan's work has helped a lot in that. And then uh, other books, um, I really like a lot of the self-sufficiency kind of books out there, like Back to Basics, Self-Sufficient Life by John Seymour. Carla Emery has the Encyclopedia of Self-Sufficiency, I believe that's called. And then, of course, anything Wendell Berry writes, uh, he's very influential. He's extremely eloquent and really has a great way of kind of putting a, uh, some deep thoughts in your mind about a possible alternate way. And we don't have to relegate ourselves. This is what I would say, too, just because the mainstream of culture is moving in a certain direction. You don't have to go with them. I mean, you don't have to choose to go down that path. Yeah. You have the Bible and 6,000 years of human history on your side to say, no, we want strong families more than we want money. You know, we want something that's going to be tangible and durable more than we want a large 401k investment portfolio. There are things that you can uh, uh, do now and just choose to do, even if it seems small and insignificant. If you're following a biblical model for the family or for work or for calling in your life, you can really trust that the Lord's going to bless that. And I certainly believe that he does. Yeah, that, that's really helpful. Um, Rory, in terms of places where people can go to, I know you've got a, a website. Um, so what is that? And then any other outlets where people can find the work that you're doing? Uh, we publish semi-regularly on our blog at thegrovestead.com, and we uh, publish four times a year. We have a print newsletter that we publish, also just called The Grovestead, but you can sign up on our website, thegrovestead.com. What we try to do is cover all of these topics that we've been talking about here today. I try to include things that um, kind of ongoing research that what we're learning about uh, trying to build a self-sufficient farm, what we're learning about durable trades and family economies. And really the whole goal of that is we want to encourage other people who are trying this too, who are looking for another way forward. We want to be cheerleaders for them and help encourage them and hopefully connect them when the time comes. Um, we're looking at setting up some events later this year that we'll either do on our farm or figure out some place to do it. Um, might have Chris Wiley come down. By the way, I think uh, he, he would be right up there with Alan Carlson. I should have mentioned him. Man of the House and Household and War for the Cosmos. Oh, yeah. Uh, Chris Wiley's been, C.R. Wiley, has been a really great encouragement and he had great influence on this work as well. So, um, yeah. So, anyway, so go to thegrovestead.com and you'll get kind of all the latest uh, info that what we're up to. Awesome. Well, I definitely encourage our listeners to check that out. Rory, really appreciate having you on the show today. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. I really appreciate the opportunity here. Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hardman Podcast. And really do appreciate Rory Groves coming on. If you haven't yet, check out the review. Uh, that I did of Roy Grove's book. Be sure to read that book, Durable Trades. We'll provide links for that information in the show notes as well. And I would encourage you to check out Roy Grove's website, The Grovestead. We'll provide links for that as well. 
um, in the show notes, but really good information about farming, homesteading, and uh, figuring out how to do durable trades, family-centered economy with those in your household. Special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. Really could not do this show without you guys. It's been tremendous to see all the support. If you haven't yet, check out on the website. You can look at our store. We've got t-shirts. We've got pint glasses. Some of you have been ordering those this week. That was exciting to see. So I'll be sending those out. If you haven't yet, be sure to sign up for the Hardman newsletter to get updates about the show, about articles that are released, etc. You can find all that information at ericcon.com. Of course, you can sign up there as well for one of our membership tiers. And that goes a long way to supporting this work. We're still working on a book. We're still working on a field manual for men. And uh, that stuff has been really, really exciting. So again, thank you for the support. And until next time, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men. <laughs>